And so uh, as we dive into the word of the Lord this morning, I want to start off uh, by reminding you, perhaps you've heard of this phenomenon. Uh, you know probably this famous, one of the fam- most famous short stories that was written with just six words. Urban legend attributes it to Ernest Hemingway. I don't think it's really from him, but uh, this short story of six words, for sale, baby shoes, never worn. Just six words to be able to tell a whole story. And it inspired, this famous anecdotal story inspired an online magazine to pose the question, if you had to sum up your life in six words, what would they be? And so there were tons of responses, and it became a whole phenomenon. They've written, published many, many books, like different collections of six-word memoirs, like including about death or about relationships from teenagers, this, that, and the other. It's a uh, New York Times bestseller. But some of my favorites that I've read was uh, One Tooth, One Cavity, Life's Cruel. (laughs) A good one, a more touching one, Cursed with Cancer, Blessed with Friends, written by a nine-year-old boy who had cancer. I like this one, a man who played the lottery a lot. His six words were, the psychic said I'd be richer. And some that are more reflective, thought I would have more impact. And I like this one particularly, not a good Christian, but trying. And I want to take this thought of taking six words to sum up your life and kind of switch the perspective a little bit and have you thinking about the church, particularly our church, if you're a member or regularly attendee. And I want you to think about if you had to sum up this church in six words, what would it be? And for those of you who tend to space out or take a nap, I mean pray real hard during the sermon, you do this exercise even during the sermon today. Think about what are six words that you would choose to sum up the character or the life of this church. And as we talk about that today, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16. We're in this series called Clear that's coming up on the big screen where we're learning in a world of confusion and conflict to see our lives through the countercultural lens of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, this letter, the Apostle Paul has written it to this kind of hip urban church in the city of Corinth who have one foot in Christ and one foot in their culture. And so Paul writes to them to remind them, instead of being blinded by the values of this world, to see clearly through your identity in Christ, that as someone who is loved and forgiven and transformed through the cross, that Jesus is growing us in holiness and unity together to be distinct from the world around us. And then he goes on throughout the rest of the letter, showing us how to practically apply that in many areas of our lives, to areas of sin, conflict, relationships, sex, controversial topics, ministry, and the future. And so today, Paul is going to move from talking about theology, about our resurrection and uh, victory in Christ, to practical reality, about how does that impact us, what kind of church are the Corinthians going to be, and what kind of church are we going to be in light of our resurrection victory in Christ. And what I want to do is actually start from the end of the last passage that we read uh, last Sunday. So we're going to pick up actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. After talking about all of our resurrection victory in Christ, he talks about, therefore, my beloved brothers, 
and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And so our starting point this morning before we dive into chapter 16 is to be reminded that because death is defeated by the resurrection of Christ tomorrow, that we stand firm in living for and laboring for Jesus today. And so Paul is continuing this thought in today's passage, and specifically we're going to see how it plays out in being the church, how we love and serve this resurrected Christ by loving and serving each other in the family of Christ. And so the big idea we want to start off with this morning from this verse is that our hope in Christ for tomorrow leads us to sacrificially serve one another in the body of Christ today. And that makes sense to us, right? Because when you know what the future holds for you, for those who place their trust and their life in the resurrected Christ, then your service and sacrifice aren't about God taking something from me or people taking advantage of me because I know that what I have in store tomorrow is outrageously better than what I give up here today. That because of the resurrection of Christ, I don't have to simply live for the accomplishments or accumulation or the accolades of the world. I can live for Jesus. I don't have to be enslaved to temporary goals in this life. I can invest in eternal ones. And I'm free not only to serve my own needs, which everybody in life does, but those of other people. Now, what this passage is not going to talk about, it's not saying, like some of us get this weird idea in our head, well, serving Jesus and being invested in eternal eternal things means that I neglect my responsibilities. No. The Word of God teaches us that we still need to work hard. We need to manage our finances and our resources. We need to raise our families to the glory of Jesus. But... Those are not the only goal, nor are they the ultimate goal of our lives. And instead, to see serving God and see serving the body of Christ is not just something we do in addition to our real responsibilities. Like, as long as I take care of my work and my family needs and pay my bills, and then whatever leftovers I have, I'll give towards serving God. No, instead, we can make it a priority by making sacrifices of our time, our energy, our resources for the purposes of God and being members of his eternal family. And so as Paul begins to wrap up this letter to the Corinthian church, remember what we've been talking about, that he's been instructing them to see themselves through the lens of Jesus and the gospel instead of the world's lens, to live out their lives together as a church in holiness and unity, to be distinct from the world. And Paul's going to get very practical about what that looks like. So let's jump into chapter 16, verse 1. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come, I, Paul. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. And if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. So what you need to know that's happening here is uh, we learn uh, in a different letter, Romans chapter 15, verses 25 through 29, that the believers in the mother church in Jerusalem have fallen into hard times. They've fallen into poverty due to 
all kinds of circumstances, uh, persecution, economic sanctions, etc. And so in verse 1, Paul has asked the Corinthian church to join all the churches in the region in helping these struggling saints by taking a financial collection for their needs. So in verse 2, he says, set aside money on the first day of every week. That means that they're taking an offering on Sunday, every time they gather for worship together on Sunday. And so what you need to see here is that this collection is not just about charity, it's about worship. It's something that they do as part of their worship together as the people of God. It's an active response to the grace of God by loving and serving and sacrificing for his ministry and his family. And so the principle that comes into play that kind of teases out our main idea is that we need to sacrificially give to the needs of the church as an act of worship. That's what the Corinthians are instructed to do, and that is part of the principle that we apply to ourselves. And so I want you to look at what does that look like for us? At the beginning of verse 2, he says, on the first day of every week that they are, they're giving. That means that they give regularly to the Lord and his work and his people. Now, you don't need to come to church with some cash in your hand because we don't live in an ancient Near East society, uh, which is kind of like goods-based or cash-based where they would have profit in their hands from whatever the, the, uh, trade that they were working at uh, daily to give to God weekly. For most of us, we're paid maybe once or twice a month if you're working, but the principle is similar, that the Bible instructs us to give regularly as a spiritual discipline, as an act of spiritual worship. And I think about this a lot because I know some of us, and this is like not to do any pastoral guilt trip on people, but, you know, there's always, uh, the finest deacon always tells us, oh, at the end of the year, suddenly we have this huge influx of donation, which is great, praise the Lord, to meet, it makes, helps us to meet our budget for that year. But it's usually, you know, when people kind of like, oh, man, when, what is the last minute that I can write a check to get in that tax-deductible receipt for the year? And so I want you to be thinking about uh, giving not as, something I have to do, but is it something that's part of my spiritual discipline to help me grow in my relationship with Jesus, to uh, an act of spiritual worship? And when I do, do I give regularly or do I just do it when it's convenient? In the second half of verse 2 is not only that we are to give regularly, but he, he says, put some aside as God prospers you. And so what that means is that we are to determine for ourselves how much we give in proportion as you prospered in proportion to what you've earned, what you have, what you're able to give. In the New Testament uh, covenant, we're not expected to give a certain percentage, but that in proportion to what you have, you're to give uh, to the Lord. And so for some of us, you don't have much, you don't make much. And so you're barely uh, paying the, the, the rent and your bills and your groceries, and so it's actually a big deal when you give to the Lord, but you love Jesus. And so you give sacrificially in proportion to what you have. And then some of us, we give maybe $1,000 a month, but you make over $150,000 a year. So it doesn't really sting you. It doesn't really affect your budget. You barely notice that dent in your spending that, that month. And I want you to consider, is that really a sacrifice of worship to God if you don't really feel much sacrifice from it? Perhaps you need to give proportionately more. And then in the third half of verse 2, he talks about giving weekly instead of just collecting money when Paul comes. Why does he say that? Because I want you to think about it this way. If 
Paul comes, and if the church, our church, or the Corinthian church were to take this one-time special donation for a specific cause or a specific missionary, uh, what do they tend to get? They tend to receive the leftovers from whatever people have in their wallet that week or whatever is left over in their bank account at the end of the month. But by asking the followers of Jesus to contribute regularly, then it requires actively, intentionally choosing to give generously from the first fruits of what they have instead of their leftovers. That's why we often counsel people, and in my personal practice, like remembering, you know, a lot of times we think, okay, how can I, when I budget out my my monthly paycheck or whatever, uh, I have to take care of the rent, and I have to take care of these bills and that bills, and then whatever's left over, I'll I'll give a little bit to God. But instead, the biblical principle is that we intentionally and generously give from our first fruits. We take first from to give to God and then parcel out the rest behind Jesus. And so giving regularly, giving proportionally, giving generously from our first fruits. And then in verse 3 and 4, Paul doesn't deliver the money to the Jerusalem church by himself. Instead, he invites godly, trustworthy representatives of the Corinthian church to accompany that gift. Why does he do that? I'll tell you what, it's not just for accountability so that no one would accuse Paul of skimming some off the top for himself. It's not just practical that there's to have safety in numbers to guard against bandits on the journey to Jerusalem. He is teaching them that you don't just throw money at the needs and people from afar, that you are to give personally. They're collecting this money. You get to bring this money directly to those people in Jerusalem, our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, that there's a personal touch personal delivery, personal care about others as the family of Christ together. And so, you know, I think about for this Father's Day today, I'm going to bring my three kids with me after church to help deliver groceries for Bridging Grace Ministry because I want them to grow up knowing that Christian giving isn't something that's done at a distance. It's not just putting money in an envelope and sending it somewhere. It's not just clicking a button online. It's personal in touch. It's relational in care. It's knowing people and loving people like God does with us when he gave his only son. He didn't save us from a distance. He didn't give from a distance. Now, there's many needs of ministries and families at church, and the question that I want you to be thinking about is, are you giving sacrificially as a spiritual act of worship? And if you're new to the church, or maybe you're not a Christian yet, it's like, oh, of course the church is saying things like this. God just wants my money. No, he wants your heart. When Jesus talks about money in in the book of Luke, he says, where your your treasure is, there your heart is also. And so there's one way to really look at where is your heart is by following where does your budget, where does your budget go to? What are the things that you treasure in this life? What do you spend your, your hard-earned resources on? Because how you use money isn't just a financial decision. It's a worship decision. It's about who or what I really treasure, who or what is really Lord in my life. And so we give back to God, not to earn his love or his acceptance, but in response to the love and acceptance that he's shown to us through Jesus on a cross and an empty tomb, how much he's given us through his son as a sacrifice, for our sin, and to give forgiveness and life to us. So I would challenge you. Many people claim to follow Jesus in principle, and some of us need to make it practical by literally putting our money where our mouth is. 
Not literally. Don't put money in your mouth. That's not right. I spoke, misspoke. But as you do, I want you to evaluate the intentions of our heart as well. Here's how you know if you're giving as a sacrificial act of worship. Am I giving regularly? Am I giving proportionately from what I really have? Am I giving generously out of my first fruits instead of my leftovers? Am I giving personally because I love and care for people, specific people in the family of Christ? These are helpful ways for us to measure if we're giving sacrificially to God as an act of worship. Let's move on. Verse 5. I, Paul, will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing, I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. <coughs> Excuse me. So, uh, if you are, have been tracking along with us, way back in chapter 4, verse 18 through 21, Paul promised that he would return to the Corinthian church at some point to visit the Corinthians. But it wasn't a pleasant promise. He, was, he said that I'm coming back to correct the spiritual arrogance of their leaders at their church. And so here we have in verse 5, Paul is, Paul is finally following through. He's making travel plans uh, from Ephesus to visit all the churches in Macedon so that he can make his way south to Corinth. But here we see there's a kind of a change in tone from earlier in the letter. His coming isn't meant as a threat of discipline or just to take their money and run. I want you to listen again to how he speaks. In verse 6, I want to stay with you. I want to spend the entire winter season with you. Not to antagonize them as enemies, but to partner with them as family, as he invites them to come alongside him and help with the ministry. In verse 7, I don't want to just see you in passing. I hope to spend time with you, God willing. And so I want you to see here that Paul is not some televangelist doing some drive-by fundraising to milk them of their money. He's acting like a spiritual father who loves them, who wants to stay with them, who wants to spend time with them. But he's going to be postponed in verse 8 and 9 to stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, which is the feast 50 days after the Passover. But I want you to see this, this little detail. Despite that delay, He's still modeling something for them, that even though I want to spend time with you, I'm going to instead sacrificially invest some time into the people here. That Paul says, despite many adversaries here, I would love to leave Ephesus because I have a whole bunch of people who would love to kill me. But God has opened this door for the ministry of the gospel here. So I'm going to invest some time and life into the people, into the church here at Ephesus before I come. And so the lesson here is that as we love and serve Jesus, by loving and serving other people, it's not just throwing money in a collection box. That's not what churches are asking. Or just doing an event for church or programs or tasks at church, which is a lot of times how we think of ministry, a checklist of tasks that we need to get done. Ministry is about family, and we minister the grace and the truth of the gospel into real life by sacrificially investing our time into people at church as an act of presence being present with people. 
It reminds me of a story of John and Denise Knight, uh, this Christian couple who were happily anticipating the birth of their first child. Turns out it's going to be a boy. And they decided to name him Paul after the missionary that we're, we're studying today or we're listening to uh, today. The difficulty was that when he was born, it turned out he was born without eyes. And his parents were not expecting it. And along with that came a host of other serious issues, including severe autism, growth hormone deficiencies. And so months afterward, as he continued this little Paul having to come and see doctors, and John was looking at his son, hooked up to all these tubes and sensors, surrounded by doctors, John quietly told God, you are strong, it's true, and you are also wicked and mean. And from that point ever, uh, afterwards, he would constantly think about, what has my little boy ever done to you? And shortly after praying that way, he quit church, and they got his family to quit talking to God. But there was this wonderful couple in their church who refused to give up on them, even when they gave up on God. And so Carl and uh, Geraldine uh, they would come and they would never pressure uh, Denise and John about um, spiritual things. But instead what they would do is they would stop by their home often, leave a simple gift, maybe fresh bread or gift basket of soap and shampoo because they knew that the family was you know, just going through an emotional train wreck and not able to take care of themselves. And because of these little acts of investing just a little bit of time and kindness, they eventually accepted an invitation to dinner from Carl and Geraldine. But John took Carl aside and said, you know what, um, you can believe whatever you want, I don't care, but I have evidence that God is cruel. And Carl responded softly, not with a theological debate. I love you, John, and I know you're hurting, and I want you to know I love your boy too. And he saw the evidence of it. It wasn't just Carl and Jerry. They're four kids. They have four kids who spent time with Paul and loved him unconditionally. And so the way that John describes it is he would watch these four children throwing his son up in the air and making him laugh, some, treating him like he's a real boy that other people wouldn't do. And then he was sitting there at the dinner table and just wondering about this extraordinary expression of love and affection sitting at a dinner table with this couple. And then he would turn left and look at these children who are playing with his son as if he was one of their own siblings. And because of this family's quiet kindness and persistent presence, John and Denise finally returned to the Lord and to their church. And when they did, Carl and Jerry were right there by their side, sitting with them every service, helping them bring, John, uh, bring little Paul to the children's program. And John would later say, this was the biggest deal, that they persisted with us. And in his words, by faith, I'm confident that someday my son might stand before Jesus, fully redeemed from sin and death, fully restored in body and sight. But right now, there are hard days. Yet the presence of persistent people in our pain is, has been an ongoing evidence that there's a God in heaven who is kind, who cares, 
and persistent people are the encouragement that sustains me in the waiting for someday. There are many people here this morning that joyfully gather to worship the Lord. And yet I also wonder how many secretly have a situation or suffering that casts a shadow over your heart. And as people like that are holding on to hope for something better tomorrow to come through the Lord and struggling with doubt in the midst today, I wonder if your investment of time and presence could be that unexpected gift of God to encourage and sustain them as they await God's redemption. One last thought from Paul this morning. Let's pick up in verse 10. And when Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease amongst you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as am I. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. So let's stop right there. Uh, I want to refresh your memory. Uh, for those of you who don't remember, uh, Paul has spent several chapters, and in fact, a significant amount of this letter confronting the Corinthian Christians about their infighting. And so even all the way back at the beginning in chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, the Corinthians are polarized around who's their favorite pastor. I'm on team Paul. I'm on team Apollos. I'm on team Simon Peter. And their divisions aren't over theology, but over celebrity. Now, we like following Apollos because we think he's a better preacher. He's more interesting. He's more engaging. Unlike Paul, they make it very clear to us in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. So that's Apollos. Another pastor, another preacher. Works same team as Paul, but the Corinthians like him better for some reason. And then we fast forward to chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. Paul is reprimanding the Corinthians for their spiritual arrogance and immaturity. And he's challenging them, you need to imitate the example of life and service of godly leaders. Like my spiritual protege, Timothy. And I'm going to send him to you. (laughs) So can you imagine if you're a Corinthian, the kind of resentment you might feel when this some young buck that is basically a yes man to Paul and who Paul, this guy who's been yelling at us over this letter this entire time, and he's going to come to us. How do you think they feel? How do you, what kind of welcome do you think they have uh, uh, prepared for, for young Timothy? And so to recap, if you weren't paying attention in the last minute, TLDR is that uh, the Corinthians, they love Apollos a lot uh, and a lot more than Timothy. And so Paul instructs the church in verses 10 and 11, when Timothy stops by, Take it easy on him, please. Make him feel welcome. Don't let anyone at church despise him. In other words, like ignore him or reject him or mistreat him. Oh, it's your Paul's guy. All right. Nice to see you. Thanks for coming. Uh, Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Instead of mistreating him, help him. Instead of despising him, support him. Provide for him in peace because he is doing the work of the Lord, just like Paul, just like Apollos. And it's important that he spells this out because look at verse 12. The Corinthians, they're about to be hugely disappointed about their guy, Apollos, right? See, because Paul says, I'm also not only sending Timothy, I tried to get Apollos to come and visit you too, 
But Apollos' response is like, uh, you know, I just want to preach the gospel and you can just save the drama for your mama because <laughs> the Corinthians like, have kind of built me up into this thing that I don't want to cause any more tension. And so it says in that verse, it's not his will, uh, Apollos' will to come visit uh, or God's calling right now for him to go. And so Paul's saying, okay, you like Apollos. He's not coming. You're not as fond of Timothy. He is coming. And he probably reminds you of Paul and his correction and his discipline. But regardless of who shows up at the doors of your church, would you sacrificially welcome others to the church who love and serve the Lord as an act of acceptance in Christ? Now, what that does not mean is that we just accept anyone to serve in any ministry who, who shows up at our door. We need to exercise wisdom and discernment about people's intentions and their integrity, and especially their, their spiritual gifts that God has given them. That's what Paul talks about in chapters 12 through 14, that you would use your gifts in an appropriate role to build up the body of Christ. So it's not, he's not saying, like, it doesn't matter who shows up at your door, Timothy or Joe Schmo, and just take them in and let them do whatever they want to serve at the church. Nor does it mean that we accept abusive or toxic or sinful behavior and people that it's good to have healthy, godly boundaries. But what Paul does mean is that we need to examine ourselves. You see, we tend to get comfortable and connected with people that we like or people like us. And that's easy. It doesn't require any sacrifice. But in the kingdom of God, as Jesus has accepted you and I by faith, then we are to accept one another without giving preferential treatment or prejudicial treatment towards other people. Because there's great power when we're sacrificial with our welcome towards others who love Jesus. There's a story of a woman named Gloria S. She's uh, using, not using her last name to keep her anonymous, but she was ready to take her own life. You see, years of drug abuse, failures in relationships, multiple rejections had all taken a toll on her. And so she had prepped countless prescription drugs to end her pain, to end her life. And she turned on her TV really loud to keep the neighbors from hearing and rescuing her. But by the providence of God, when she turned on the TV, the channel that it was tuned into was the Billy Graham crusade of all things. And for those of you who don't know, Billy Graham is probably the most famous uh, Christian evangelist of our generation. And at the bottom of the screen during the Billy Graham crusade, there's a little telephone number that says, for anyone who needs help, just call this number. And so somehow, she had decided to get it in her head that, that she would make a phone call at least before she took the pills. And the, counselor that, the Christian counselor that picked up the phone recognized that this woman was in dire need and in serious straits, and so instantly said, you know what, this is what I want you to do, Gloria. Uh, don't just talk to me. I want you to go directly to this nearby church where someone will be able to help you personally. Personal touch. And so... It was enough that she would, from, from hearing from this person, she decided to put off committing suicide just one more time. And I'll just go to attend church the next day, which happened to be Sunday. And so just before the worship service began, she showed up at the door. She actually met the pastor. And she's kind of like, she, never, she hadn't been to church since she was a kid. And she's like, uh, Billy Graham sent me. <laughs> so I was just like, Okay. And there's a whole story that goes on with, with her, but I want you to hear from her own words. Later, she would give this testimony in the church. She stuck around, obviously. 
Billy Graham saved me from killing myself. But this church showed me how to be saved from my sin because of the love of the people here has been incredible. I never knew that someone as dirty as me could ever receive love again. But you people, that's usually a negative way of saying things, right? You people accepted me just as I was. And I have seen Jesus. He's in the face of, of all these people at church who have loved me and treated me with acceptance. Our church has a reputation. You know, <gasps> yeah, we have a reputation for all kinds of weird things. But one of the feedback that I used to get a lot from um, visitors was that, you know, uh, Pastor Josh, your church is tremendously warm and welcoming. And yet, I know people who have even grown up in this church who feel isolated and alone when they come, who will never sign up for another church retreat ever again because they were traumatized by the memories of feeling left out and ignored at past ones. I know that you as a church can be quite kind and welcoming. And I also know that you are quite comfortable with the many Apollos in your life at church. And I want to ask you, who are some of the Timothys that you need to intentionally not despise by being unwelcoming and unkind? And not just thinking about like all the people who have hurt you. That's right, Pastor Josh. Tell them. Put, hold up the mirror to, you, to yourself today and allow the Holy Spirit to confront you. How will I sacrificially welcome other people as a brother, as a sister, as a fellow servant, as a friend in Christ. We need to be clear about our sacrifice for Jesus, his ministry, his family. And we need to decide together what kind of church we're going to be. And if we're really clear about the selfless grace that God has poured out on us through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, then that helps to set us free from the world's values of just living for ourselves or living for our own work or our own pleasure or our own family or our own plans. That our hope in Christ for tomorrow leads us and frees us to sacrificially serve one another in the body of Christ today. And so I want to track with you for a minute. I wonder if you did that exercise or if you thought I was just kidding about if you were to summarize our church in six words. And if you did, I, wondered if, I wonder if it included anything like sacrificial, serving, giving, present, welcoming, worship. May you remember the sacrifice of your Lord and Savior Jesus. May you be inspired and empowered to be sacrificial in your service to his kingdom, ministry, and his family today. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, as we celebrate you and, and the dads in our midst and our families today on this Father's Day, we also remember that our family is more than just our physical, our biological, our nuclear family. That for those who've given their lives to you, 
through Jesus, placing our faith in Jesus, that you've given us a new family, a bigger family in Christ. And I think about the words of your son Jesus, who tells us in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, that people will know we're your followers, your disciples, by our love for one another. And I'm deeply convicted today that our love for one another is more than just words. May we love you as our perfect, good, heavenly dad. We thank you for your goodness, your generosity in our lives, your grace to rescue us, to redeem us, to give us resurrection, the promise of tomorrow. And so may we live for you today. May we be the kind of family in Christ that is incredibly sacrificial. Not because we have to earn something from you, but, but because we get to be like you and serve your family and your people. And it's not always easy. If we're honest, the church is, it feels like a, a flock of porcupines trying to huddle together in the, in the cold night. And sometimes we wound each other. Sometimes we don't like each other. We irritate each other. But God, thank you for reminding us that sacrificial love is not convenient. Thank you for reminding us that this is one of the ways that we worship you. Teach us to be sacrificial in how we give. To be sacrificial in how we invest our time into people. Sacrificial in the ways that we welcome those, even those that we have some contention with. May the love of Christ cover over a multitude of sin. So this morning, God, we ask that you would convict us in response to all that we have received in the resurrection of Jesus. May we live our lives today as a love song, as a response song to you. May we be the church that you call us to be, that you know us to be. We don't simply look at the institution or a, the organization of a church. We look at ourselves and our participation, our membership in the church. May we be men and women of sacrificial kindness, generosity, and love today, just like our Savior and Master Jesus. So we lift up our repentance, our need for self-examination, need for change to you today in the powerful and beautiful name of Jesus.